How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Russ Yarrow, General Manager for Corporate Affairs at Chevron and a proud member of the Board of Governors at the Commonwealth Club. Tonight's program is part of Innovating California, a series that is a partnership between Chevron and the club to explore solutions to some of the most critical issues facing the Golden State. Tonight, we're discussing clean energy innovation and job creation. Energy is one of the biggest industries on the planet, and innovation at this scale doesn't happen overnight, but once it takes effect, the impacts are profound. In a moment, we'll explore the opportunities and challenges of clean tech, energy efficiency, and other innovations competing for a slice of the energy pie. Our discussion tonight will be joined by Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One, and our distinguished panel here in San Francisco, which includes Dan Adler, President of the California Clean Energy Fund and a former staff member at the California PUC. Jeff Byron, Vice Chair of the Clean Tech Open, the world's largest business competition for clean tech entrepreneurs. Jeff is also a former commissioner of the California Energy Commission. Matt Scullin, founder and CEO of Alphabet Energy and a former materials scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And finally, Kathy Zoy, a partner at Silver Lake Silver Lake Kraftwerk, and the former Assistant Secretary for Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy at the U.S. Department of Energy. Please welcome them to the club. Thank you, Russ. Thank you, Russ, and thanks for being a partner on this program. Welcome, all of you. Let's get uh, started. Uh, Dan Adler, let's begin with you. Energy innovation, tell us about the, how that compares to other forms of innovation in other industries, and the scale and the speed of innovation in energy. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. Uh, we heard from the introductory comments that energy is one of the biggest businesses in the world. I actually think it's the biggest. biggest. The only relevant competitor might be finance, but finance actually should enable other industries to exist. So as a standalone undertaking, energy is the, is the largest and most complicated thing that really society undertakes. And we in California are in the midst of a great innovation boom, particularly in the Silicon Valley area, where at a fundamental level of, of science and early stage business development, there's a tremendous amount going on. And we're doing as an economy, a California-wide economy, a great job of stimulating it. But if you step back and look at the real scale of what needs to be achieved, it is much more than just a technical innovation challenge. It's more than just getting the science right. It involves every aspect of social institutions. It involves scale capital, uh, redeployment, the likes of which we've really never undertaken as, as a species. Uh, so it's a combination of markets, the way markets are governed, the way policy interacts with uh, the, the governance of markets, and the continuous process of scientific inquiry that really only takes place uh, in, in the best circumstances of, of a human organization. So it's, a, it, it, it's fundamental to everything that we do. It's deeply challenging. It, I fully consider it to be my life's work. If, uh, if I'm here at the end of my life and I can comment positively on what we've achieved, uh, that, that'll be a great boon. But it will be with us as a challenge throughout that whole period. Matt Scullin, you said that uh, energy innovation involves uh, bridging Silicon Valley, Pittsburgh, and Houston. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Um, so 
uh, I think that the way energy differs from other industries, especially ones that we're familiar with in Silicon Valley, is that, first of all, uh, it's extremely technical. And there are a few opportunities that I've uh, noticed that are not very technical in origin or nature. Um, the energy industry overall, and I come from a perspective that's highly slanted towards power, uh, given what Alphabet Energy does, um, but it is kind of a textbook commodity market. Um, it's, it's driven by very basic economics that you can read about um, in introductory economics classes. Uh, the innovation comes mostly from uh, technical advances and not as much from um, say, product market, or, or in some cases it could come from financial advances, but uh, it's mostly technical innovation that occurs. And um, I think when, when I talk about how uh, clean tech has to bridge the gap between Silicon Valley and other more traditional energy worlds like Pittsburgh and Houston, Pittsburgh being kind of the traditional area of industrial innovation in the country and Houston being the traditional area of, of energy innovation and, and um, I guess, energy uh, power, um, it's about managing um, expectations around innovation cycles and how those can be um, linked between Silicon Valley and other areas that are very conservative um, and don't adopt technology very quickly. So um, in the context that the innovation is technical, um, Silicon Valley is a great place for technical innovation to happen. But um, in Silicon Valley, uh, we are a little bit spoiled by industries like semiconductors, biotech, and, and software, the Internet, where technical innovation can also translate into very rapid uh, societal change or um, there are very rapid sales cycles that come after rapid uh, technical innovation cycles. And in the energy industry, you have very long innovation cycles technically, but you also have very long sales cycles. And so um, that's been a challenge that I think has uh, has hurt clean tech lately because a lot of folks in Silicon Valley weren't expecting there to be such long cycles on both ends of the product innovation uh, course. And I think a lot of the correction that clean tech is currently going through is around uh, understanding uh, clean tech's role in a broader energy economy that exists mostly outside of Silicon Valley. Kathy Zoe and Jeff Byron, you've both been nodding your head here. Kathy Zoe? Yeah, I mean, I, just, I think that it's important to try to tease out why is the sales cycle longer? Why, well, why is it different than how quickly an, a new iPhone can be adopted? And I think it's because energy is an essential service. And it's largely controlled by very large utility organizations. So we, we've looked at uh, companies in the smart grid space, and they get very, very excited when they have when they sell a pilot to a utility. But the pilot then has to run for so many years, and you guys know as former regulators that you have to approve when the utility has a pilot, and then they have to evaluate the pilot, and then the pilot might get extended, but that has to be competed out. What you're talking about is something that is maybe an eight-year sales cycle for something in the smart grid that actually works, whereas when you talk about, when you, you know, when I talk to my colleagues in Silicon Valley about, about some tech product, it's like, oh, we're going to beta test it, yeah, and then it'll be for sale by July. You know, and so it's a, just a different sort of time horizon because the, it's an essential service that you can't really mess up. Jeff Byron? Yeah, maybe there's a, even a couple of other uh, reasons why clean tech is not like high tech. Uh, certainly, um, uh, in many cases, there's big iron associated with, uh, with clean tech. Uh, the, the long lead time is difficult, uh, uh, as Kathy mentioned, but maybe also because the, there's a lot of regulatory aspect to everything to do with energy. 
Um, uh, Whereas a lot of the software markets are unregulated, the Internet's sort of this wild west where there's very little regulatory friction, oversight, also different capital requirements. Right, and and exactly different expectations with regard to rate of return. These are long-haul, typically, uh, companies' investments, sales times, as you indicated. But I think the regulatory aspect can't be underestimated. We get a lot of new entrants into clean tech, and they don't appreciate the fact that the um, – and I learned this from, from Mr. Adler – the institutional incumbents uh, really do control the game. And people underestimate the speed. And, and let's talk about the financing. Where is money available right now if, for clean tech entrepreneurs? We hear a lot about – Silicon Valley pulled back because people thought that energy was like software, learned it ain't so. Where, where is there money for entrepreneurs right now? Uh, we're yeah. not seeing that pullback. Uh, uh, for those of you that don't know, the Clean Tech Open is a nonprofit. Uh, it has about 1,500 volunteers. In fact, I see a few of them in the audience here today. Um, and we've helped about, I think, almost 600 companies over the last six or seven years as an as a incubator of sorts. Um, oh, we hold out prize money, but we really do mentor these companies along the way. We're not seeing any downturn there. We're seeing enormous investment. Um, the, the, the surveying of our companies afterwards, uh, uh, both short and long-term investments, have exceeded, we think conservatively, about $460 million so far. Dan Adler, VCs got burned on, on clean energy, right? They did, and I think that the true nature of that experience is really yet to be told. If you look at the, the normal investment cycle for a venture fund, if they started raising and deploying capital in the middle of the last decade, it's a 7, 8, 10, 12-year process to really see what kind of exit you're going to get. So we haven't really – they haven't been forced to monetize their, their failures entirely. Uh, so there is a lot of money left. What about in, their successes, Dan? Well, they haven't been able to monetize too many of those. You want to get to the successes. <laughs> and the, but, All so, I'm saying there, is there, – there is, there is balance, and, I, and I, yeah, it's a fair point. I will get to that. But uh, the original – Original, the, the last wave of venture interest starting in the last decade was a sort of non-specialist venture capitalist. Uh, and what seems to be happening now with firms like Cathy's and others is a coming back to the specialist investor that actually understands the dynamics of this industry best. Mm-hmm. They're the be- they're best de- positioned to deploy venture capital in a sensible and efficient manner. Agreed. And meanwhile, what's happening, just to round up the thought, sure. is that the other aspects of the uh, investment process are coming into greater focus as well. The innovation piece is essential, but we have to get to infrastructure scale. And there are many different forms of capital that have to be deployed to get there. And you're starting to see more financial innovation, borrowing techniques from other areas of infrastructure finance that can be used to deploy the innovations that we're creating almost largely in California up to the industrial scale. So it's a, it's a, it requires many more financial techniques than just venture capital. Matt Scullin, the funding void. VCs have pulled back. Pulled back. Where do you see money coming forth for energy I, innovation? I think that, you know, on the same note about clean tech successes, I, I think that if you look at or if I look at the um, the successful clean tech companies that have been out there, and, and maybe success is a little bit subjective depending on when you invested in the company, um, but if you look at companies <laughs> like uh, Amaris, which is no longer actually a clean tech company, or... Um, it's a biofuel or, company. Uh, not even biofuels. Doing more right. cosmetics than... But yeah. it, exactly. So if, if you look at, at a company like Amaris, which is now a makeup company, um, and... <laughs> hey, you got to go with um, and it's lower volumes, higher margins. Right, right. It, it's a good business, but they're not—they're not a clean tech company anymore. But if if you look at companies like them, like Tesla or, or um, you know Better Place or other ones that have been in the news a lot, uh, the one common thing that they all have is is corporate strategic investment. And I think that we're seeing that a lot as well. Is that uh, you know 
bridging the gap between what we're doing in Silicon Valley and the real world requires some type of partnership with companies that have done this many times. And one thing that I, I say to folks who are getting into clean tech is that there's really no such thing as, as clean tech. Um, your company probably looks like a semiconductor company, a materials company, a car company, a material, or I said materials, um, uh, a fuels company, chemicals company. There, there are lots of different existing industries that your clean tech company fits into. And that means that the manufacturing cycles and the, scales, uh, the sales cycles and the scale-up time is, uh, is probably known um, already. And the, the, the closer you can link your clean tech company to an existing industry, um, the better your chance of success in scaling up. And so I think, uh, you know, there seems to be some kind of void in financing around the Series B stage. I think that seems to be the area where, at least I've noticed, um, venture investors have pulled back a bit uh, just because the, the return profile getting in, you know, around A or B doesn't seem to be as, as good. And that's where I think strategic investors um, – are, are coming in and providing some capital to get to scale. Kathy Zoe? Well, I was just going to I was going to bump it up a few levels in terms of like 30,000 feet. The macro of this sector is fantastic. The I mean and here here are the sort of the fundamental principles. You've got energy demand growth growing around the world and again it's growing more quickly, much more quickly in the emerging economies. But I, mean, I, I recently looked at an IEA report that compared the OECD d- demand growth to the to the emerging countries, and it's it's phenomenal. It's growing in the in, in the in these emerging economies hugely. Um, you know, we've I've looked at the, the the growth of solar in in India, for example, um, because if you can generate an electron in India, somebody needs to buy it. I mean, absolutely. But then when you look at India, but, but it's, the, the demand's not growing very much in uh, places like the United States and Europe. But what's interesting there is that the infrastructure is old and needs to be updated. So you've got a demand growth for, for new emerging technologies in the developed world. So you've got all of that demand growth. And then you have, you, there is capital available. When you look at, again, the IEA says there's, there's going to be $23 trillion that's needed between now and 2035, I think is their number. But there is capital available. And, and particularly at the, the project finance level, that, that's actually very, very, a very safe investment. So pension funds are moving towards those sorts of, those sorts of asset classes. But, but even in the U.S. where Project Finance wants to see something running for, for two years before they invest in it. I mean, if you're, if you're a brand new technology, how are you going to get Project Finance? Right, right. Which, which brings us to policy interventions to reduce the risk, which we can talk about. So let, let's talk about policy and whether uh, some of these companies see their earliest markets overseas. Whether if the, if the growth and in new innovation is happening overseas, are the startup companies in Silicon Valley looking to India, to China as their early markets? Sir, uh, that's, that's certainly, I mean, I see a fair amount of that. I, yeah. I, I, you know, companies that, that I'm talking to these days, if, they're, if they are American companies, number one, they probably were venture-backed. Right, because there's been 50, nearly 50 billion dollars of venture money going to the sector in the past decade or so. So lots of lots of institutional backing for the sector over the past 10 years. But secondly, they're looking to expand overseas. They're either, they are either already you know manufacturing overseas, but they're certainly looking to those markets. I mean, Ch- China's 12 five-year plan has put in place a very, very um, sort of good environment for the growth of LEDs, the growth of solar and those sorts of things. India has policy settings that, you know, 20 gigawatts of solar is going to be backed and supported by by government targets. Um, And it's happening around the world. So it's a very, very vital international market, I think. 
And Jeff Byron? It's not just the industrial policies of China. It's the climate policies of Europe. Right. It's, uh, uh, I think, many of the clean tech open companies we see, uh, their their initial markets are outside the United States. And is, are you saying that's because of a price signal on carbon, that, that some places are pricing carbon and that provides opportunity? Part, it's, uh, I'll go back to what Kathy said about policy. I think we're seeing more receptive policy at the national levels in China and in Europe um, and, and some of the developing countries. I mean, the drivers seem to be a little different. I mean, in, in, in China, if you look at what the, what the, what the leadership, the, the political leadership says in China, they view this as a strategic competitive investment. That if economically they're going to be a powerhouse, they have got to be manufacturing, inventing, and innovating in the clean energy arena. Dan Edler, you believe that the price on carbon in those other markets is not significant. It's not driving that innovation. I, I don't think – well, I, I could not sustain the argument, and I wonder if my colleagues would disagree, that there is a meaningful difference in business decision-making based on the carbon price really anywhere in the world right now. Everything is about the commodity and <coughs> the vertical into which that commodity is being sold. And so you have to look at the market design and the extent to which that guarantees revenue and offtake and maybe even a little bump for an unproven technology to start selling its product to, say, a utility or an industrial incumbent of some sort. But carbon pricing is not changing business behavior at this point. It's, it's an indicator where it has been durable, even at a low level, that the macro-political environment is robust and will sustain the underlying energy policies. But the carbon price signal, to me, is too weak to, to make any difference. By too weak, you mean that the price of carbon in Europe too is, is too low, with five euros, something? Yeah. It's, it's not long yeah, it, it might It might be an upside to some investors' uh, prognostications, but it's not going to be dispositive in where they put their money. I, Jeff I agree, Dan. The, we did some studies at the Energy Commission a number of years ago that indicated we really need to see carbon prices on the order of $140, right. $150 before we start seeing real behavioral wow. changes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, to, That's to get, really high. To get the fuels market going, you have to get that high, and that would destroy the utility business. So the notion of one carbon price as the global solution to our energy policy problems is, is really pretty difficult And, to and I can tell you firsthand that, that we don't factor any price of carbon into any type of calculations uh, about marketability or financial projections that we do. It's just not something that we can um, – we can predict. It's not something that we can sell. It, it can't. It can't affect how we're thinking about our business in the earliest stages. So, um, you know, I think we happen to be positioned in a place right now, Alphabet Energy, where we've had money through this this learning cycle, and we have more money to take us hopefully far enough through the rest of it. And um, our focus has been on low cost electricity from the start, regardless of of whether or not there there are carbon prices uh, involved. And um, that has to drive product innovation. I mean, uh, you know, a carbon price inherently is, is not going to drive the type of innovation that's necessary. The, the more competitive the electricity market, the, the, the better the technology is going to be, the more, the more competition there's going to be. That's what I believe, and that's, that's the stance we take at Alphabet. So California's about to put a price on carbon. Is that a meaningful signal, or is it too low here in California? I don't know what it is, 25, 50, somewhere in there, Jeff Byron? I don't recall the exact number either. But, it's uh, going to be set partly by, by auctions and by the market, but right. it's certainly not 140, and no, it's, it's not, not. five. But, no. but it's a start, and uh, uh, I would like to, to tip the hat a little bit to California and the policies that we have. They really are uh, innovative policies. Uh, I told Kathy just before we came on, I'm not happy with her leaving the deal. We, we need good people like her in government at the federal level. Missing a national energy policy, the, the AB32, which was the... the, the uh, Global Warming Solutions Act. The Solution Act was really not a Solutions Act. It was a Leadership Act. And we'll continue to provide that leadership in California. 
But that act was passed in 2006 when the economy was really good. The economy seems to be sputtering right now. Can clean tech continue when uh, in a sputtering economy? Will, the, will it sputter along as well? Dan Adler? Nationally, over the last seven years, there's been 12% increase in employment in clean tech across all various subsectors. And compare that to job development, job growth at the macro level. It's I mean, pretty, I, pretty astounding. So, I, Just to amplify what Dan's saying, I just saw a report, uh, data from a report that said that there's like 135 companies that are advertising for jobs in this sector that and if they hire all the people that they're asking for, it's going to be 46,000 new jobs. So, and, and, and it, you know, think about those terrible, sad job numbers from last Friday, and then compare right. those numbers. Right. This is really it's it's the, the the tempo may be slowing down just a bit, but again, the macro force of the growth of the sector because the innovation. I mean, c- companies like Matt's are innovating and they're driving and it's continuous improvement. It is a this is a. You should tell everybody a little say, bit about your technology. Yeah, tell us what you do, Alphabet Energy. Um, so we make a, a semiconductor. It's a material that's kind of like a solar panel. Um, but it turns heat into electricity instead of light into electricity. So it's uh, um, a new take on a very old-fashioned technology where we can make uh, take a material, make one side hot, the other cold, and it generates electricity. And with that, we can do something called waste heat recovery, uh, where we can insert it into exhaust flues or other forms of wasted uh, heat energy and generate clean electricity uh, from the wasted heat. So this is your pitch is to companies right now that are losing, they can make money off their waste. Their waste can become a revenue. So it's, yeah, it's, it's energy efficiency. And, um, that's right. So, so companies who use it, uh, whether it goes in a car, on an engine, or in a factory or power plant, uh, the idea is you're doing more with the resources that you're spending money on. So you're saving money on energy that way. And it, uh, you know, energy efficiency is challenging because you, uh, on the one hand, it, it, it's a great thing because you are saving saving somebody money uh, when they when they buy this product. But it's challenging because you're never increasing top line revenue, right? If we go to a, a company that produces uh, paper, um, we're not helping them sell more paper by installing this, but we are lowering their costs of uh, of producing that paper. You're so, helping the bottom line, not the top line. That, right. So so it helps companies to stay more competitive. But I think that gets to that gets to the core of why the sales cycles um, can be long in the case of, of what we're doing, in that uh, you know you do have to go in and convince people that this is not going to blow up their factory. Um, it's not going to make the car shut down while you're going 80 miles an hour on the highway, and it is going to save you money and, and be a good thing. And so um, it seems almost foreign that anyone would not want to adopt new technology sitting in Silicon Valley and us, you know, all being used to, to buying new iPhones when they come out and things like that. But it, it is a challenge making that sale. Um, and we have to compete um, on, you know, very simple measures. What's the payback time? What's the ROI? Is the electricity we're generating cheaper than other electricity that, that folks are already buying? We never make a sale based on efficiency. We never make a sale based on carbon. Um, our customers don't really care. And so they care about how much they're paying for electricity. They care about how much money they can save. So, yeah, we're a clean tech company. Um, but don't you, does, did, What are the other attributes of your technology? Does it reduce the footprint? Does it increase reliability? Does it, I mean, it can increase reliability, but the bottom line is that it, it, it will generate very cheap power. <coughs> and so it really is a spreadsheet-driven sale. Um, you know, there might be some emotional aspect if we get to the right person within the organization who has some desire to make the organization greener. But for the most part, we're talking about organizations like, um, you know, 
Fortune 50 companies that uh, aren't going to make a sale based on the decision of one person within the organization. It's, it's going to be something that um, is very much based on a decision of where to spend capital in one, one area versus another. And so it comes down to, to rational factors, and we have to sell based on on how we compete with other forms of energy generation, other forms of energy efficiency. Matt Scullin is founder and CEO of Alphabet Energy. Other guests today are Jeff Byron, vice chair of the Clean Tech Open, Dan Adler, president of the California Clean Energy Fund, and Kathy Zoe, a partner at Silver Lake Craftwork. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about some other areas where there's really exciting innovation happening, companies turning waste into, into money. What are some other companies that really excite you? What do you think could be some real wow breakthroughs in energy? Jeff Byron? Well, I, I'm sure that Dan and Kathy will, will share all their great insights on companies they're investing in. But uh, uh, I, I, Matt was one of our stars at the Clean Tech Open. Uh, his company did not win, but, uh, but they've gone on to get funding and financing. We won four awards, though. You did, at, uh, in, in addition to Clean Tech Open. In the Clean Tech Open. In the, in the Clean yeah. Tech Open. He's got them in his pocket over yeah. there, yeah. yeah forgive me. Okay. You just, I remember so, when we met, you told me that you hadn't. You well, we didn't win the first You didn't prize. win the big prize. Yeah. So who are some other exciting ones that go, wow? Well, so what I wanted to point out was that uh, although what, what uh, Matt said is absolutely correct, there are other things that drive innovation and companies. And we'd like to think that standards also drive them. Energy efficiency standards do work, and they create the need for new companies and businesses. But th- that's hard to reconcile with being an entrepreneur. Yes. So wh- who, you know, if you have new standards, if you have policy drivers, who's responsible for innovating around those? Because how do, how do you time it? Well, uh, what I was going to point out, Matt, was that we developed in California, and we've been doing this for 35 years, both building and appliance efficiency standards which do change the marketplace. We've, we've had a lot of innovation in companies that have evolved um, trying to meet those standards. So uh, it's and, and those sales cycles uh, uh, tend to be shorter, tend to be a lot more, uh, not, I don't want to say easier, but not as difficult as the challenge that you're up against. And that can be for uh, refrigerators, TVs, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Kathy, Zoe, and Daniel, we're yeah, some real wow. Well, just, just to answer your question, Matt, the, 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 there is a national law on appliance standards, and there's long lead times. So there's so essentially a law was passed in 2007 that said the, the Department of Energy will pass improved efficiency standards for all of these appliances in this timetable, mm-hmm. and it gives entrepreneurs like you plenty of time to innovate to help meet that standard. So there again, there, it's not tomorrow. Um, I mean, years ago we invented this concept called Energy Star, which started off in computers and it was basically taking power management technology from laptops that can serve the battery, putting it in desktops. We had companies sign up to do it, and then we didn't allow anybody to use that little Energy Star logo for a year to give more people a chance to, to actually innovate, and they innovated way beyond the benchmark of what the definition of a low power state was. So, so that's the way I think appropriate, proper regulation does. It gives you guys a chance to compete and win on innovation. But, but who innovates there? Because when I go to Best Buy and buy a fridge that's Energy Star compliant, it's still, it's still made by LG or whoever, right? I mean... What startups have actually innovated because of these appliances? Oh, but a lot so, of those companies are buying startup are, are buying startup technologies. Right. I mean, you know, I, I meet with a lot of those big companies now, and they say, "Who have you got in your pipeline?" They can help me at the start. But innovation doesn't necessarily mean creating a new company. It can be innovation inside large companies. Dan Ember, sure. we're some wow innovations out there. Well, we're spending a lot of time looking at uh, electrical storage in all of its various forms, and Good. that. People have known that's a, a holy grail for renewables. Right. And, you know, the thing about the grail is that you know they never found it. So I'm not sure that's the right <laughs> metaphor to use. Uh, but there are a lot of different ways to do it, and a lot of different things technically that are interesting and achievable. And there's nice market dynamics, and that particularly with batteries, venture capitalist investors always want to see multiple 
opportunities for their product to get in the marketplace. So you can start with consumer electronics, where everybody's got a heavy battery demand, and they're you know they're charging through uh, the duty cycles. Flow into the, the the car industry, and then up to the grid scale. So there are many opportunities to prove your, your product's merits. Uh, the challenge with storage, and this goes to the, the notion of standard setting and market design, is that it can do so many things, but no one has specified how you get paid to do all the things that you do, right. for instance, as a battery company. So the world is your oyster, but you, know, you don't know how to open the shell, perhaps. And we want to talk about some home runs and some failures, as we mentioned earlier. Um, who are, what are some of the most successful clean energy, clean tech companies so far? Uh, well... Tesla was mentioned, very interesting car company there in our fund-to-funds portfolio. And if you told me in 2006 that our first exit would be a standalone electric car company in the United States, I thought you were crazy. So you have to look at the combination of technical innovation and real business savvy that that company is. And, and a note on Tesla, uh, they've been up 40% since their IPO about two years ago. Uh, NASDAQ's been up about 30%. Uh, for, they, they beat Ford and GM over the last year. Of course, GM just went public okay. again recently. So, Just an, an aside on that, though. So uh, there was an, an analyst note from some 25-year-old Wall Street walk that said, Tesla, the fourth great American car company. Well, at that point, we had two car companies in this country. So what was the third? You know, like a, and a, Tesla's a made a total car. of about 5,000 cars, right. so they've got a ways to go. So the, a lot of reasons to, to doubt it, but I, I think that the most exciting things are a combination of the, the technical sophistication, but I'm spending more and more time as a as an advocate as well as an analyst, looking at process innovations, business model innovations, things like what Solar City and Sunrun are doing. Anytime you can make the, the upfront cost disappear for the energy <laughs> technology that you're trying to deploy, it makes the sale that much easier. So, there, And again, it's lateral moves from other industries using things like real estate investment trusts, master limited partnerships, getting the debt markets going. Uh, right now, we're fighting for scraps in terms of comes to finance because we don't use the same financial techniques that industrial society largely I mean, uses. I, I think if, if you look at the uh, solar market in its entirety, it's really exciting. When I when I took up my post at the Department of Energy, the prices for solar were about seven dollars a watt installed. When I left um, last year, it was about three fifty. Is the prices that we were seeing again, and it was, so it was. That, that's just and they're much lower since. And they're probably yeah. much lower right. since. So, so there have been some very high-profile uh, failures, but that's in some ways part of the part of what happens when a market matures, when it becomes more competitive, when some manufacturers are able to cost down and others aren't. And so. it's not just Solyndra. First Solar's had some layoffs. There was another bankruptcy recently uh, in, in, in Massachusetts. Canarca Technology Company filed for Chapter 7 recently. So there's lots of blood on the floor because of the it's, it, That's and normal? S- and, right. and similarly, I mean, you know, Google wasn't the first search engine. Right. I mean, I really, I really do think that Good we point. forget. And, and, you know, we all, you know. Remember at be. home? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, yeah. it's creative destruction. You just have to make sure that there's creativity going on, not just destruction. That in, in the way of these business failures, we learn something about the way markets work, the way the policy can help markets, and you know, there's consolidation to get to scale. We have to consolidate. To but consumers, scale. in the long run, benefit from all of this. Yeah, right. Yes. That lower costs, better products. And in the background, we've doubled clean energy production in the last decade. California's got 1,500 solar firms that it didn't have 12 years ago. A lot of them are failing. A lot of them aren't. I know a momentous thing happened in Germany on Sunday, um, which was, and some of you may have read this, is that that half of the electricity um, that entered the market was from solar. 
you know, and, and there's been this big thing because, you know, last, was it sometime in the last 12 months, Germany made a commitment to phase out its nuclear. You thought, oh my gosh, how are they going to do this? Well, they've said, then they've made a commitment to meet the, meet their demand with renewables and efficiency improvements and everything else, but then there was all this worry from the, from the engineering community saying it won't work, it won't work, we can't do it. But on Sunday, half, half, and you know, they've had the policy that supported rooftop solar for many years, and it has borne fruit for Germany, as well as really drove the prices down because it was a big enough market that a lot of innovative manufacturers paid attention. And the German consumers paid dearly for that electricity. Well, but as a part of the mix, right? Very high prices. Well, per kilowatt hour, 30 cents, right, Jeff? A, a little bit higher, certainly, but uh, they, have a lot, they have a lot of benefit to show for it as well. Remember, Germany uh, had a, a lot of coal-fired power plants that they've displaced. A lot of jobs. Germany's mm-hmm. exporting clean tech to sure. just China, everywhere yeah, else. They make the machines that China deploys. We're talking about clean tech innovation at Climate One. Our guests are Dan Adler, president of the Clean Energy Ener- California Clean Energy Fund, Jeff Byron, vice chair of the Clean Tech Open, Matt Scullin, founder and CEO of Alphabet Energy, and Kathy Zoe, partner at Silver Lake Craftwork. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the specific jobs. Where are the jobs uh, in in California? Are they being created here? Are, there, are we going to have some? There's been some talk recently about reshoring of jobs, manufacturing jobs actually coming. From China back to the United States, is that going to happen? Dan Adler? Manufacturing is always <laughs> an exogenous set of factors. It's going to be much bigger than just the energy economy, certainly bigger than clean energy, but things like exchange rates and, ter- and trade and tariff policies matter a great deal there. Uh, and transportation costs. Yes, right. And so the, the Which gets the you know, fuel costs underneath right. that. Yeah. Uh, California has a, a good percentage of its jobs in what the Bureau of Labor Statistics considers green. So they, they did a study earlier this year. They had the national economy, I think, at something like 3% of the jobs were green in nature, some description. California is roughly the same percentage, about 390,000 jobs, I think. Uh, the subset of that that's energy-related, uh, the subset of that that's manufacturing, manufacturing is tough here. It's going to be tough here. We know that. Uh, there are targeted incentives that we're using and tend to some effect. Tesla is in California because the state made a real effort to put them over there in Fremont, and, and it worked. Uh, can America compete on a manufacturing basis? Yes. The evidence is clear that right now we're having a boom, but union pay scales are not the same as they used to be. The manufacturing pay scale is not what it was. Mm-hmm. We don't want manufacturing just because we manufacture. We want good jobs. We want well-paying jobs. That's a that's a much larger problem of globalization. And there's wage upward wage pressure in Guangdong in eastern China. Sure. And eastern China, Mississippi, am I so that's, right? That's a good thing, yeah. You want to race to the top. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think I was telling Greg the story um, before we came on, over the last you know few months, when I've been talking to companies, it's sort of and they were they were thinking about where to put their manufacturing facility, or they just had put their manufacturing facility. Many were in Malaysia or someplace in China, sometimes in India. Um, but if they weren't in those three places, then they were in Mississippi. <laughs> and and I, then I, I scratched my head, and then I remembered a conversation that I'd had with Governor Haley Barber. Uh, while I was at the Department of Energy, and he did with probably what the state of California did for Tesla. There were some economic development incentives. There was a stable workforce that was perfectly suited to do the solar manufacturing, and it was cost competitive with for, for the companies. You know, on balance, if they could pay the same amount, then they would prefer to be here. Makes a lot of sense. Um, how much of this is reliant on subsidies? We haven't talked directly about subsidies. We talked a little bit about Germany uh, uh, ratepayers subsidizing that. Um, is clean tech too dependent on taxpayer subsidies right now? Well, everything in energy gets subsidized one way or another. Uh, that's not a that's not a um, uh, let's say a, a, 
I'm not condoning it. I'm, it's just an admission of guilt. Uh, you can say that the oil industries, uh, they, you know, their depletion allowances, all the tax credits, et cetera, et cetera. And yes, we have created some uh, incentives to spur the development of wind, of solar, um, uh, the investments uh, that the Department of Energy made as a re- part of the American Recovery Investment Act. I believe you oversaw $30 billion worth of investments. It needs to be said, these were good investments. These all come to the bottom line of consumers and eventually save them save them money, the investments in energy efficiency, et cetera. So th- I you suppose... You don't think we paid too much for it? Uh, uh, no, I, in fact, I think just the opposite. The American uh, Energy Council, which is a bunch of CEOs that got together about a year and a half ago uh, that included uh, some pretty high-profile individuals. Um, Bill Gates, and, and John uh, Doerr, John Doerr, right. Jeff Immelt from GE. Yes, you yeah. recall, you know what I'm talking about. They called for a $16 billion investment in just energy R&D. Did I have that number right? Yep, yep. Right. So, no, we're not paying nearly as much. Uh, public interest energy research in California um, is, a, is part of what every uh, rate payer pays, and we're one of the only states that does this kind of program, and it was not continued uh well, actually, I don't, want to, I don't want to confuse the matter. It was just continued by the Public Utilities Commission because right. our legislature failed to pass it. I'm Working with legislators, we said, don't just pass this. Double it. These are good investments. So the subsidies have some tremendous benefit, but what we all hear about in the news are the subsidies that end in failure, such as Solyndra. Great. Jeff Byron's a former member of the California Energy uh, Commission. Uh, Dan Adler? I think if we sort of unpack the role in finance that the government plays, you can identify some points where we, I think, would agree that it, they're uh, underfunded from a public interest perspective, certainly at the RD&D scale. Demonstration where venture capital runs out and traditional project finance isn't ready to come in because the risks are too extreme. Huge role for policy, both in shaping markets and providing capital. Where I think we have a problem is imagining a future where we can scale to where we need to be in terms of commodity energy production, like electrons and fuels, using the same kind of subsidy regime right. that we have today. Right. Even if we didn't have this massive, massive fiscal problem as a country that we're going to have to get serious about, do we want our industry out as you know, the, the, the first victim of that conversation, or do we think about how to pull in other private money that can take the place of some of that robust public subsidy as we scale? And that's where you get to large <laughs> strategic investors who right. have the scale and capital and the know-how. And, and just to, capital to markets that. generally, so not just industrial partners, but there, there's trillions of dollars on the sidelines globally right now looking for good investments. Kathy mentioned that smart market design leads to long-term contracts with proven technology, it's, it's gold. We're, we're only starting now to see that kind of movement from institutional investors towards clean energy infrastructure. Kathy, sorry. Greg, your question was about subsidies, and subsidy mm-hmm. has a co- particular connotation. Would you ask the same question about a target? I mean, in, in, in the policy world, I mean, you can, you can, you can deploy lo- there are lots of different policy tools in the tool chest. A subsidy is one thing. A grant for R&D is another thing. A target. A subsidy renewable is something that someone else gets. Yeah. <laughs> a benefit is something that I get, right? And it's always, you know, subsidies are something that, that someone else gets, right? Well, but, but, but to just point, we're all, we're all benefiting from some of these things. It, what's interesting, having spent as much time in Washington as I have, is that, is that dollars um, are easier to sort of vote to support, but policies like a target takes much more political capital. So what we tend to see is politicians voting for a little bit of this on wind, a little bit of this on continuing this oil tax break, a little bit of that. And, you know, pure policy folks would argue, let's just level the playing field and, 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 you know, create some targets that are based on outcomes to reduce pollution 
or to create jobs. That's what we're trying to do. But the messiness of actually policymaking, whether it's in Sacramento or whether it's in Washington, mean that you have this hodgepodge. Um, all, all I would say is that, 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 we should, that none of these things is a particularly dirty word, but we should have an honest conversation about, about here in 2012, what are our national objectives, what are our state objectives, and how, how can the governments most effectively it, you know, intervene in that marketplace to support the goods and, and not support the bads. So let's take a specific example. The, the production tax credit uh, for wind energy is set to expire at the end of this year. Uh, people involved in the wind energy industry say that's going to cost American jobs this summer because there's a long lead time. It uh, looks like Congress may or may not approve that in a lame duck uh, session. Is that a good policy or a bad policy? I think, I think a, a volumetric incentive in the form of a cash payment based on production, meaning you're actually getting electrons uh, or you don't pay the, the subsidy, is, is good policy design. The, the way that the production tax credit breaks down is that it forces these partnerships with large institutions that have some sort of tax appetite that they want to offset. So basically you're saying to a corporate entity or a financier, don't pay your taxes but support clean energy. I'm not sure that's a sustainable political message over time. And there aren't that many people, institutions, that can do that. So in, particularly in a recession, when people's tax liability goes through the floor, then your, your policy mechanism is worth nothing. But the, the notion of paying a little bit to get more clean power on the grid, to make up for all the societal costs that we're not monetizing into the, into the equation. Is, Jeff Byron? Well, for those of you that, that, uh, that track all this and understand it, the production, or don't, I should say, the production tax credit for wind has basically been a cliff every couple of years. And uh, it's uh, about a two percent, two cent, little over two cents per. It goes down over hour. time, is that just? No, it ends ah, unless it's renewed by Congress, and we're facing another one of those cliffs. So it's tough for folks to put, to, to make orders and and to to plan production for the, uh, ensuing years unless it's renewed. Well, I'm not a I'm not a fan of artificial markets that are created by subsidies like this. I'm I'm not not a fan of cliffs. Uh, that are that are in the in the hands of political entities that uh, that really determine business futures. So, but some sort of ramping down would make more sense. Wind has certainly got, become very cost competitive, and uh, and and probably could begin to survive on its own without any subsidies. Well, ex- except that again, if you talk to some of the big companies that are involved, um, and, and they're big international players, they're saying. All right. Well, if this goes away, then it's not that my business is going away. It's just going to go away. It's just that I'm not going to do business in America anymore. Right. So that's because <coughs> there are incentives of one shape or another in Europe and mm. in China and in other parts of Asia. And so, it's, again, it's, it, I think there's another competitive frame through which we have to think about yeah. the policy. And I, I, think, I think what's um, made things more competitive lately and is something that we're all still trying to figure out is what's happened with natural gas lately. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we have to, that's the elephant in the room. We have to talk about how that's affecting everything. Yeah, and it's definitely the elephant in the room because coming back to jobs, um, I mean, the most jobs in the energy world have been created over the past couple of years in natural gas. And the cleanest thing that's happened on the grid is coal to gas switching over the past six months in particular. The capacity factor of gas plants is, is up and the capacity <laughs> factor of coal plants is down. And... Um, you know, Tremendously it, and quickly. Two people talk about energy right. doesn't move fast. That yeah. moved really Extraordinary. fast. Right. Yeah. Uh, very, very fast. And, and so um, on the one hand, I think uh, it is somewhat of a stepping stone to a cleaner energy portfolio because offsetting coal with gas is a good thing. But it's not, it's not good for uh, clean tech and renewables in that cheap gas makes it much harder to compete. 
um, trucks are probably going to move to LNG uh, relatively quickly. Liquefied natural gas? Uh, liquefied natural gas, yeah, sorry. Um, uh, transportation in general um, now has, you know, when you think about electric, you're now thinking about also converting to natural gas. It becomes competitive that way. Um, electricity prices have gone down because of, of natural gas, and they may continue to do so if gas stays cheap. So um, overall, having an incredibly abundant resource that um, has just kind of popped up in the United States over the past couple of years, I think makes it harder overall um, in the U.S. for renewables to compete. And I think it, you know, uh, just lends itself to the, the points that we were making earlier about opportunities outside the U.S. looking more attractive and subsidies being perhaps more necessary than ever. But also, um, you know, what, what does it mean now uh, to have more gas on the grid in terms of the climate? Um, you know, how much do we need to subsidize sol- uh, solar and wind? And what, what are the effects that these, uh, these renewables can have with more gas on the grid? And um, I, I think what makes it even more complicated is that uh, gas kind of obviates the need for a smart grid. Uh, when you have gas on the grid, it's much easier to operate the grid, which on the one hand enables more solar and wind, but on the other hand might deter uh, infrastructure investments. So I think a lot of things have changed over the past six months, and it's, you know, who knows what's going on right now. Gas is a real game changer. Five years ago, people thought the U.S. would be importing natural gas. Now we're talking about exporting natural gas. Anyone else on on gas as a game changer before we go to audience questions? Well, I I, I, I would just say um, that one of the things that President Obama has proposed um, is a clean electricity standard that would get, basically by 2035, 80% of our, we would reduce our emissions by 80%. Um, when when I was still at the Department of Energy and we did the modeling, um, that wasn't a very expensive policy. You know, it was a nice glide path. Then gas prices dropped precipitously. So I don't know what the new modeling numbers are, but to get to something that is so ambitious is an 80% reduction, you know, an 80% clean grid basically with low gas prices is going to be it's going to be it's going to be terrific. It's going to be really easy because, as everybody knows, gas has half the emissions of. Uh, of, of coal. Half the CO2. Half the CO2. Dan Adler? Well, that just raises the point, and going back to the carbon discussion, is where do carbon opinions matter? They matter in, in the legislative chambers. People have to believe that this is a serious problem, and they'll design policies with carbon in mind, even if they're not pricing carbon directly. But two maybe more positive notes on, on gas than, than Matt's point, and it, it does concern me greatly. Matt mentioned that the capacity factors of plants are increasing, meaning the existing ones are working hard <coughs> all across the country. But if you're, if you're a utility planner, and this is borne out in conversations with utility planners, and you have to build something new, are you going to bet on $3 natural gas? Or are you going to look at solar and wind deployments in your neighboring states and in your portfolio that are working for you that you can integrate under your existing demand profiles and make that bet on, on the free energy resource? And there's, So it, it's not just existing versus new costly renewables. It's You have to do something new and pay for it. It tends to break more favorably for renewables. And the notion of the, na- the international marketplace is starting to get people's attention. Mm-hmm. In Europe, UK in particular, gas is three, four, five times more expensive than what we pay here. Japan shutting down its nuclear plants, looking to import gas. So there will be some global equilibrium well north of what we're seeing. In, so in $3 US. gas is not here to stay. Uh, Jeff Byron? Je- Just for my to, money. to add to all of this, there is at least some silver lining to low prices of natural gas. It really does benefit consumers in a couple of different ways. We're talking as policymakers and investors in clean technologies, and, and, and it's certainly affecting us. But the health of individuals will improve tremendously as a result. And I would expect electric prices not overall to be lower, but certainly as we move 
uh, uh, to natural gas, the low cost of that fuel, will drive electricity prices lower. Jeff Byron is a former commissioner of the California Energy Commission and a consultant to NRG Energy, which is a electric utility. Right. It's, it's certainly hurting NRG Energy. Uh, low, low price of natural gas is really difficult for us when we do long-term gas buys, and, and it keeps getting lower and lower. It's tough on nuclear, too. Yes. Uh, we are going to invite your participation, put a microphone out here, and uh, invite you to come up with uh, to join us with one one-part comment or a question. Uh, and if you're on this part of the audience, you can please go back there. And the line starts with Jane Ann, our producer, who's waving her hand right there. And uh, invite you to come up. Uh, so whoever's the first one can uh, come on up with... Uh, yeah, the line forms back there. Great. We, this is often... Uh, so let's have our uh, first audience question. Hi. Excellent panel. This is my one-part question. Um, I was wondering what you see as the uh, potential for clean tech companies to uh, make sure they're not leaving money on the table by perhaps greening their operations further. Most people, most uh, innovators come into the clean tech sector from a technical and business background as they should, but not necessarily, in my experience, so much of an environmental background. How much do you see that by really, quote, greening their operations, they might be able to get to exit sooner or increase their profits. Hmm. Matt Scullin? Well, um, I mean, I think the the dirty little secret, pun intended, in clean tech is that, um, you know, you're doing a lot with chemicals or or other manufacturing processes that, um, that aren't necessarily green. Um, and I think green can mean a lot of different things, right? It's not just about carbon. Uh, it could be about water. It could be about, um, uh, you know, uh, as Jeff alluded to with, with health, uh, particulate matter, coal, or things like that. It's all kinds of things that, that green can mean. Um, and I'd say that from kind of a pure startup perspective, it's something that we have to think about within the letter of the law, but we can't spend money on having the greenest operation in the world. It's not something that is, is that realistic? We're, we're but if doing it saves something. you money? If it saves you money? It saves, if it saves us money, sure. But then it's not a green decision, right? It's, it's an economic decision. We, do, we don't put it under any kind of, you know, green umbrella or anything like that. It's, it's just an economic decision. But, you know, uh, we're trying to be a, a company uh, that impacts the world. And we think that in order to do that, um, we have to be successful with the products that we launch. And so we're not going to let anything get in the way of that. Um, and... Uh, it's just an approach that we have to take given the, the resources that we have and, and what's available. Um, but, you know, if there is an opportunity to save money, sure. It's all economics. Of course, we'll, we'll take it. Jeff Byron? I, I just wanted to add, there's a transformation that's going on. And uh, as I age, I notice it more and more that we got young superstars that come up uh, through our educational system now that are really motivated, I think, contrary to the question, by environmental issues, by sustainability issues. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're creating businesses and starting companies to make money. But you notice what areas they're choosing to start businesses. And, and uh, uh, we, we've got a whole new crop in the last, I'll say, 10 years of, uh, of really motivated and bright individuals that have sprung up around energy and clean technology. I don't think we had that 20 years ago. I'll, I'll add a just comment on that. Dan Adler. Um, entrepreneurial environment requires venture capital and entrepreneurial spirit, and venture capitalists want scale quickly, and a lot of young companies don't know how to manage that. 
And so the scale gets messy and they become inefficient. And so whether it's environmental waste or any other kinds of waste, it's obviously an opportunity for them to not just get profitable quicker and find their markets quicker, but frankly not have to raise more venture capital because the less you have to do that, the more company you keep for yourself uh, and you can focus on your business operations and not giving away your company to people like Kathy and myself, I guess. Slow down your burn rate. <laughs> let's, uh, let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Hi. Um, we're entering a political season. Uh, I think there's real Are we not in it yet? <laughs> we're in it. <laughs> Maybe we never in it. We never start yet. Uh, I think there's real, a very likely chance that we're going to see, uh, you know, Republican president, some chance that a Republican-controlled Senate, or I have a Republican-controlled House candidate, Romney, was standing outside Solyndra, uh, holding a press conference. So asking you to don your political caps, what does a Republican-controlled federal government mean for the clean tech sector? Uh, I'd ask you to speak honestly and maybe not, uh, you know, uh, don't mince words. Is this something we, if we care about clean tech, should be worried about? Will this affect uh, clean tech investments going forward if the federal government becomes even less supportive uh, of, of clean tech going forward? Kathy Zoy. <laughs> I get to go first. I think it matters hugely. Mm-hmm. I think that candidate Romney calls the sector much ballyhooed, and I take offense to that adjective. Um, look, I, I think that, that President Obama has presided over the largest investment in this sector that has ever happened in history. Um, it's, you know, but my, my, my little budget was $38 billion, uh, and it is strategic, and it was competed with the private sector. This wasn't a bunch of sort of ding-dongy government employees investing in funny ways. This was, this was sector-by-sector, peer-reviewed, competitive projects that went to thick play, innovators like Alphabet Energy. It is just the beginning of a transformation uh, that's happening, and, and the president, is, you know, is, is advocating now for what he would, wants to do when we get back is a clean electricity standard, which, as I say, will, will create the, the business risk, uh, the, the settings for the, so that business can manage its capital well, I mean, the, create a glide path for capital. I see none of that from the Romney campaign. But Governor uh, Romney in Massachusetts supported solar and did some things that are very different than the political campaign now. Dan Adler? Yeah, so which version of candidate Romney will we see if he is installed? The, the Etch-a-Sketch has yet to really settle on, on that point. And, and, and which version of the Republican Party are we going to see? There are plenty of Republicans in Congress who understand the energy imperative, particularly from a security perspective. Uh, there's, a, there's a great movement afoot within the national security uh, establishment <coughs> to embrace clean technology. Uh, and frankly, for take wind, for example. There are wind jobs in all 50 states. And some very smart communications going on around this is your district, and I can overlay all the clean tech activity that's going on in it. Uh, and we can design markets that are capital efficient, that are, are good for your local workforce. You don't even have to talk about climate a lot of times. So it, it really is what, what's the political tenor of the party when it, when it enters. Jeff Byron? I, I hopefully add a positive note to this. Uh, uh, looking forward is always challenging, um, uh, but we can look back in California and see that uh, the last two or three governors we've, we've had uh, both Republicans and Democrat, uh, and 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 really clean technology and renewables are bipartisan issues. They don't have to be polarizing. It's the gridlock. It's the it's the polarization that we've got in D.C. right now and in our own legislature here in Sacramento. That's very troubling. Uh, you know the fact that you can't pass anything if it has a word tax associated with it. That we're going to return to the 1970s in terms of scientific thinking again. So I, I I'm very optimistic. Regardless who's there, they'll they'll drink the Kool Aid. 
We have a, just a few minutes left in a long line there, so let's go quickly through these questions and answers. Yes, sir. Hi, Gary, Malaysian. I've heard a lot of good information here this evening. Uh, but I, I'm curious, Greg, how much of the press and, uh, and the politicians do we have in the room? I don't know, but they'll definitely hear about this. But uh, I'm just wondering, though, because until those people hear about this, it's a very slow process. How are you going to get the media educated and the politicians educated, not at the level you're at, but at a level where they get on board and move this thing forward? Because, like the young man said before me, if, if a Republican gets into office, you can kiss a lot of this goodbye. I mean, I think the Bush regime set us back two generations regarding <coughs> climate change. And I'm hoping that doesn't happen again. What are you going to do to get media and politicians involved? We'd like to tackle that one. Dan. Just very briefly, and this, you know, we could have a drink afterwards and talk about it at length, but uh, I, I tend to think it's more about defeating Obama than it is about un- unpacking any piece of his agenda, that uh, cooler heads will prevail if that does transpire, and I certainly hope it doesn't. But I, I wouldn't indict the whole Republican Party with a, an anti-clean power agenda. I'm willing to indict uh, uh, Ms. Zoe here. Um, I don't think this administration has done enough to really um, uh, to talk about the accomplishments of the American Recovery Investment Act investments. These are game changers. The stuff that we've seen in the last six years, less, the last three or four years, have been extraordinary. It, well, yeah, it, yeah it, 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 has, it has been extraordinary. It has been extraordinary. I mean, and you, but you do make a, a very good point. All of the polling even now says the American people support clean energy. Republican, Democrat, Independent. So, look, I would I would wish that cool heads would prevail over the sector, but I don't see any you know I don't see any evidence of it right now. I agree with you on the on the on the the the, the folks that were involved in this and designing the Recovery Act and implementing it. There's a lot of really really unbelievable data that's come out of that. Um, and in fact, there's a there's a book that's coming out in August that I would point you to by a, a guy who's a reporter for Time Magazine who was covering who covered the Recovery Act kind of all the way through its first couple of years, and he said, this is so interesting. I'm going to write a book about it. It comes out in August, and it's, um, I think it's called The New New Deal. But, but it's, it's, it'll be fascinating. I'm sure it'll be a bestseller. <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> well, it, Alphabet yeah. is an example of a company that, that's benefited from, from all the public investment over the past few years. I mean, uh, you guys have said very nice things about Alphabet, and I don't really know why, but um, <laughs> you, you know, uh, we we um, we we took government money and we needed it to get going initially. I mean, our our core research was all funded by the Department of Energy. Um, our core technology is the Department of Energy technology. And in 2009, when the capital markets were closed, um, it was getting government money from the Army, the Air Force, and the Department of Energy that opened up private money um, and opened up that opportunity for us. And so uh, I think you know the the bad press that. Um, the loan guarantee program, which I think is a very important program in bridging the gap uh, to scale for clean tech companies, I think the bad press it's gotten from uh, Solyndra is a tragedy. Yeah. And I think that um, that's a very important program, and ARPA-E is another incredibly important program mm-hmm. in, in we, terms of early We could go into research. that. The military, Republican governors doing lots of things <laughs> on clean energy. Let's get to our audience question. Yes, sir, welcome. Oh, hi, hi, Gerald Harris uh, from the Quantum Planning Group, and I specialize in scenario planning. It looks like to me that uh, the technology is going to do two things that are in conflict. It's going to increase supply, alternative energy, all those kinds of things. And it's also going to reduce demand through energy efficiency, which means at some point the price has got to collapse. 
And this has happened before in the power industry between 1910 and 1970. And what happened was what we call creative use uh, wastage with things like electric can openers. So to me, it seems like in the long term, you need to do something on the demand side. And maybe the issue is the solar-powered washer and dryer, as, uh-huh. as similar to the under $100 computer. So my question is, what are you going to do on the demand side when obviously the electric, electric prices have to collapse based on these trends? Well, it, it's interesting, though. It, we, we human beings keep finding more and more things we want to plug in. That so, can opener is a good thing, yeah. Well, no, right, but, but, the, but the, the biggest load in your house right now, if it's not your air conditioner, if you're in a hot climate, it, it, it's your, it's your, it's your set-top box. I mean, it's like, so, so it's all, it's all the comms and they've got this vampire load that's on all the time and stuff like that. So we keep finding more and more things to plug in. I, 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 but electricity demand is the way, at least in my words. <laughs> but demand in the United States is flat. Electricity demand has not gone up in right. the United States lately. Where demand goes up, yeah, it has even gone down. Where demand is going up and is in the developing world. There, there's some statistic I read, um, it was a couple years ago now, where, you know, if everyone in China got a toaster, it meant they had to bring online hundreds of coal-fired power plants, right? And so that's, I think that's the important question. It's not about, you know, the TVs that we have or, or how much power our iPads uh, consume. Uh, when we plug them in, I mean, electricity demand in the United States is not really going up. That, that points out to me the most the most important question in this whole discussion, which is the role of the utility going forward. It, as long as they're incented to continue to build things and put them into their rate base so that they can earn off of it, there's going to be that kind of conflict you're talking about. But if we get them in the frame of mind that we've known how to articulate for three decades now, energy as a service, where meet the need, don't provide the commodity, what do people actually want? Cold beers, hot showers, Amory Lovins line. Get them in the business of doing that, not pushing electrons through the wires, and then I think your conundrum can be faced. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Uh, in chemistry at UC Berkeley, a quick question. Uh, it's wonderful to hear about natural gas and its availability. How serious is the fracking problem, and how, how much is it connected to the greater availability of gas for Americans? I mean, I, I say pick your poison. You know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, do you want more coal on the grid or do you want the possibility of contaminated groundwater? I have no idea. It's, it's very hard to say. <laughs> I, I mean, it could be a problem. I, I don't know. Done I don't properly, fra- fracking done properly can be done well. And, and sure, right? Right? That's true. Like, like everything. Like everything. It's not right? all fracking is bad. There's lots of ways it's done. Uh, no, I, I absolutely think that it can be done well. I, I mean, the, the development of the resource got a little bit, went so quickly that it was a little bit head, ahead of the rate of a regulatory, transparent framework that would create comfort in communities that were that were part of the fracking resource development. Right. So, but but that that will I think that will catch up and done appropriately. And companies like Chevron that are big and that are here to stay will will be will, will welcome that sort of regime. Um, there's a little bit of a worry that some of the upstarts might not might not be so excited about having a regulatory framework, but. They need to, and there's, and there's certainly room in the economic equation for proper regulations to make sure that it's safe. Dan Adler? Fracturing technology is responsible for the, the boom in supply. Yes. And, oh, by the way, that technology is available because it was federally supported for a very, very long time. And Jeff Byron, last word. The fracking issue will have to be addressed. Uh, uh, at least from a public perception point of view. It is. States like Texas are already doing disclosure, California disclosure. Yes. And fracking is not new. 
It's right. something that's been going on for a long time, but I agree completely with my fellow panelists, but we, the industry still has to address it head-on, or it'll find itself in a similar situation as nuclear power, where public perception was never really addressed head-on. They have a little bit of catching up there, don't they? Okay. <laughs> we have to end it there. Our thanks to our panelists today, Dan Adler, President of the California Clean Energy Fund, Jeff Byron, Vice Chair of the Clean Tech Open, Matt Scullin, Founder and CEO of Alphabet Energy, Kathy Zoe, Partner at Silver Lake Craftwork. I'm Greg Dalton. Thanks to our partner today on this program, Chevron. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg.